Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, writer and journalist Nicholas Fogg will shed light on the historical conundrums of Shakespeare's sonnets. The sonnets represent one of the great literary enigmas and have given rise to endless speculation and debate. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's uh, highly appropriate to get fire warnings on Guy Fawkes' night, I think. And it's quite an interesting thing uh, about November the 5th that the man I'm... Can you all hear me, by the way? Go ahead. Uh, The man I'm... Very good acoustic in here, Helen. Um, The man I'm speaking about this evening uh, would have known at least two of the gunpowder plot conspirators, personally and possibly quite well. Uh, Robert Catesby actually came from the borough of Stratford-upon-Avon, and um, also Ambrose, Ambrose Wook, Rookwood, another of the conspirators, actually lived there. So it, it demonstrates what a small world, in a way, the Elizabethan world was. As you probably realise from the chairman's introduction, um, something I have in common with William Shakespeare is that I was born in Stratford-on-Avon too. Uh, this may seem that I'm a great heir to literary genius. In a way, I am... In the 19th century, a music publisher called Vincent Novello had a walk around Stratford-on-Avon, and he wrote in his notebook his conclusion. He said, in most places, the Almighty spreads the genius of the place through the population. But in Stratford-upon-Avon, in his inscrutable wisdom, he decided to pull it all into one man, which has left all the other inhabitants bereft of wit for generations to come. (laughs) So I'm really proud to have uh, given my share of genius to, to, the, to the great man, uh, my great townsman. Um, Shakespeare's sonnets, we, we've got very limited time, and it, 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 you may be mildly surprised to hear that it is a vast topic, because there's all sorts of angles. Obviously, it's a literary to- topic. It's also a fascinating biographical topic, and I think it's also... Uh, a deeply philosophical topic, but not in the way that you would imagine. Now, I'm always a great believer in warning um, any audience I speak to of the perils that face them to come, and I must issue a warning that before this lecture is out, I'm going to fall in love with one of you. That's absolutely correct. I shall fall in love with one person, and in the light of the material, it could be a man or a woman, I, I think uh, you'll find. So there is, there'll be no sexual discrimination in who I fall in love with. But you'll get the point that I'm making at the end, I hope. I hope you get the point anyway. <laughs> now, um, Shakespeare's sonnets were published for the first time as a collectivity in 1609. Um, they represent a huge enigma, uh, a biographical enigma, and we'll, we'll rapidly, I think, deal with that. Probably some of you will be familiar with it. Um, I'm not giving away any secrets. If I say most of them, the, the bulk of the 154 sonnets are addressed to a young man. Um, and this is the young man that I believe very strongly uh, that they're addressed to, but we'll come to who that is. Um, the um, issue is the first... 20 or so, it's difficult to uh, put a precise figure on it, but the first 20 sonnets represent a definite sequence. In other words, um, the the cult of the sonic sequence, which was very strong in the 1590s, Shakespeare's doing the same thing. One sonnet leads to another, and they're all on a particular theme. Now, the theme of Shakespeare's first 20 sonnets is both complicated and simple. It is 
how do you gain eternity, how do you defeat time? And Shakespeare has a number of answers. In fact, he has three answers to this very important issue, which absolutely engaged the Elizabethans. It's one of the things they were obsessed with, the movement of time. And one of the uh, ways in which you defeat time is through progeny. Now, he wouldn't have known this, but genes never die. We pass on our genes to the next generation. Probably Shakespeare knew that intuitively. Um, So by having children, uh, we defeat time because something of ours passes to the next generation. But in the case of the beautiful young man, probably this young man, you you would agree he is very beautiful, um, that Shakespeare is addressing in these sonnets, um, he uses this theme of uh, begetting uh, an heir uh, as an f- elaborate form of flattery of the young man in question. I'll read you Sonnet 12. When I do count the clock that tells the time and see the brave day sunk in hideous night, when I behold the violet past prime and sable curls all silvered o'er with white, when lofty trees I see barren of leaves which erst from heat did canopy the herd, and summer's green all girded up in sheaves, borne on the bier with white and bristly beard. Then of thy beauty do I question make, that thou amongst the wastes of time must go, since sweets and beauties do themselves forsake, and die as fast as they see others grow. And here's Shakespeare's conclusion. And nothing gainst time's scythe can make defence, save breed to brave him, when he takes the hence. So that's how you defeat time. You have some kids. Um, but there's another way in which you can defeat time. And um, it's the old Latin phrase, you know, life's brief and art's long. It, you can defeat time uh, through art. And uh, Shakespeare um, says, again, he's embarking on an elaborate flattery of the young man by saying uh, that because he's inspired this poetry, then the young man uh, will live as long as people read his works. Of course, here we are tonight. He was right, wasn't he, the old bard? He didn't get much wrong. When I consider everything that grows holds in perfection but a little moment, that this huge stage presenteth naught but shows where on the stars in secret influence comment. When I perceive that men as plants increase, cheered and checked even by the selfsame sky, vaunt in their youthful sap at height decrease, and wear their brave state out of memory, then the conceit of this inconstant stay sets you most rich in youth before my sight, where wasteful time debateth with decay to change your day of youth to solid night. And all in war with time for love of you, as he takes from you, I engraft you new. In other words, he's he's going to survive because he's in his poem. And of course, the most famous, I suppose, of Shakespeare's poems, the most admired poem, is on the same theme. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May and summer's leaths hath all too short a date, sometime too hot the high of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. 
But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. I reckon that was written in about 1593. Um, People would disagree with that, but there are reasons I think it was 1593, both internal, biographical, and stylistic. Eight years before this, um, William Shakespeare um, was in Stratford-on-Avon. He had just, at the age of 21, uh, had twin children that are are baptized in the church in Stratford-on-Avon, And what a remarkable progression that is. In eight years, he's gone from being the son of a local worthy, a considerable local worthy in a provincial town, to being the most celebrated dramatist of his age, all in eight years. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? And it also, to me, demonstrates the huge self-confidence he must have had, you know, to to make that transition, uh, his belief in himself. So the big question, obviously, is a man called George Stevens, who hated Shakespeare's sonnets, loathed them. He's an old Etonian, so knew nothing about literature whatsoever. In 1780, George Stevens um, spotted the fact that these sonnets are written to a man. And he was quite discreet about the whole issue. He didn't go into sort of any hanky-panky or anything like that. Um, But obviously the question, which was raised by people like Oscar Wilde, was... Is this a homosexual relationship? I mean, in one sense, it doesn't matter at all, but um, we're obsessed with biographical detail in our century. Um, So was this... Is he addressing this young man as a potential lover or as an actual lover? Um, Well, there's no absolute definite answer to that question, but I, I would tend to say it's extremely unlikely... I mean, firstly, it's not much of a homosexual chat-up line urging someone to get married and have children, is it? Um, But in um, Sonnet 20, Shakespeare actually deals with that charge, and again, it's it's a complicated sonnet. It does actually demonstrate um, Shakespeare's absolute brilliance with words and his incredible wit. Um, So I'll read it to you rapidly. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted, hast thou the master mistress of my passion? Master mistress. Very, uh, you can see where that comes from. A woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with shifting change, as is false women's fashion. An eye more bright than theirs, less false in rolling, gilding the object whereupon it gazeth. A man in hues, in, all hues in his controlling, which steals men's eyes and women's souls amazeth. And for a woman wert thou first created, till nature as she wrought thee fell a-doting, and by addition me of thee defeated, by adding one thing to my purpose nothing. But since she pricked thee out for women's pleasure, mine be thy love, and thy love's use, their treasure. We could go through, spend the whole lecture time examining this poem. What Shakespeare's saying there is that this incredibly beautiful youth, um, he could easily fall in love with, and Nature has created this beautiful youth, when she created him, created him as a woman. But nature fell in love with her own creation, and, Shakespeare says, she couldn't stop going, you see. By addition, me of thee defeated. And if you want to know what she added, Shakespeare tells you in the penultimate line, since she pricked thee out for women's pleasure. He's not averse to using the old common uh, bits of bawdy language. 
Mine be thy love, and thy love's use their treasure. So who was the young man? We don't know, of course, who the young man was, but there's, a, there's an absolute and complete front, front runner, and I'm not going to sort of mess about. I'm, I'm going to go for sort of definites on this one. Um, here he is, Henry Rothersley, the Earl of Southampton, um, incredibly rich young man. Um, at the time that this portrait was taken, which is probably the time of the sonnets as well, around about 1593, um, he was 20 years old. Um, he's, his father was the second Earl of Southampton. He's the third Earl of Southampton. His father was the greatest Catholic magnate in the land. His father died when he was eight years old. He was brought up. He became the ward of Lord Burley, uh, Elizabeth's minister. Even at this age, at 19, he was supposed to marry Burley's granddaughter, and he had left her at the altar. So he was a bit of a treacherous uh, so-and-so. Um, move on three years uh, from this portrait... And he, well, I can only use the phrase, I hope it's not offensive, he knocks up one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting, Elizabeth Vernon, and um, the Queen is not best pleased with this. You know, someone has impregnated one of her uh, ladies-in-waiting, and so both Elizabeth Vernon and uh, and, um, Rothersley are bunged in the Tower of London. Uh, And there was a third party arrived soon afterwards, you know. Um, So, but... uh, in spite of the effeminate-looking portrait, he was an incredibly martial figure. He was an associate of the Earl of Essex, uh, military commander, cavalry commander in Ireland, and um, fought in the Spanish Wars as well. Um, what connects him with Shakespeare? Quite simple. Shakespeare, right about this time, dedicates um, his great work, the bestseller of the age, went through 25 editions, Venus and Adonis, and follows that up by dedicating to Southampton The Rape of Lucrece. Why was Shakespeare writing poetry in this period? You know, because he's a poet is the obvious answer. But it's not as obvious as that. 1593 was the worst year for the theatre in theatrical history. It was even worse than 2008 in the West End of London, I can tell you. Uh, There were no musicals at all. Uh, That was an advantage. In fact, there was nothing going on in the theatre whatsoever in 1593 because the plague for two years closed all the theatres, which was a a desperate thing to have happened. Um, And so Shakespeare, in order to raise his money, had to turn his hand to something else. He turned his hand to poetry. Um, And he created these two great poems. And the legend is that Southampton, he dedicates them to Southampton. Southampton is so pleased with these poems, he gives Shakespeare a thousand pounds. That's often doubted. If, if we maybe in questions, I, I, I've got an idea why he gave him a thousand pounds and what happened to that thousand pounds. Let's have a, just a look and see if we can find Shakespeare himself. Again, this could be the entire lecture. This picture turned up in Montreal ten years ago. The family said, "Well, a fellow called Sanders painted it. It's a picture of William Shakespeare. Absolutely authentic um, in terms of dating." Um, they've gone as far as, as as possible. This is William Shakespeare, age thirty-nine. So he's, uh, we can't get him um, to the era of the sonnets, uh, but it's, he's a sort of jolly-looking man, isn't he? Unlike all those sort of grim-looking things you usually see on complete editions of Shakespeare. This is a very lifelike portrait. And just one more. That's the famous Chandos portrait of William Shakespeare. Again, he's slightly older there, quite Italian, wearing an earring, etc., that was in the possession of a man who vaguely claimed to be Shakespeare's illegitimate son, a man called Sir William Davenant, in the 1650s. He was definitely Shakespeare's godson. 
Um, but anyway, we, that's another story, so we won't go into that. Um, anyway, moving on a little, we have um, William Shakespeare there. D- I think 90% certain that R- Henry Rothersley is the dedicate, the young man of the sonnets, because um, there is no other young man available, and it's known that he has this relationship with Shakespeare at the time that the um, theatres are closed. It's also known that Henry Rothersley was a deep devotee of the theatre. Um, in 1598, someone writes, he spends all his time going to the plays, etc. Ultimately, he was condemned to death because he joined the Essex Rebellion against Queen Elizabeth. Um, but fortunately, the Queen died, and James I quite liked him. So he, he only just escaped. He was a man of action as well as a, a, as, as a man of uh, um, theatrical and uh, literary interests, etc., in the year 1598, a young clergyman called Francis Mears um, wrote a book uh, in which he described the, the great figures of, the, of English literature. Eight great poets, he said, we've got in our language. He, he goes through them, and one of them is, of course, as you may imagine, William Shakespeare. Mellifluous and honey-tongued Shakespeare, he calls him. Um, witness, his Venus and Adonis, his Lucrece, his sugared sonnets amongst his private friends, etc. Um, so um, he doesn't mention Shakespeare's plays. Well, he does a little later on. He goes, does a list of Shakespeare's plays. But what interests him is Shakespeare as a poet. In 1599, an um, anthology appears called The Passionate Pilgrim, um, produced by a printer called William Jaggard, who ultimately printed the first folio of Shakespeare's works. And William Jaggard includes two of Shakespeare's sonnets out of the 154 that have come down to us um, in his collection, his anthology of poetry. He, he, Shakespeare is so popular by then, he actually is taking poems by other people and, and ascribing them to Shakespeare. Like, he takes a poem by Christopher Marlowe, Come Live With Me and Be My Love, um, and says it's by Shakespeare, because he knows Shakespeare will sell copy. But interestingly, um, Mears, in 1598, the sonnets are already... In, um, existence, they're circulated amongst private friends. And this is what happened to poetry. Poetry was almost published by accident. Generally speaking, it was circulated amongst groups of people, rather like a group of people like this. You know, people who come together, you're all interested in um, the lecture series. Well, they're quite often aristocratic groups of people. John Donne's um, poems circulated in that way. So did Andrew Marvel's. And in most cases, it's only by a kind of accident that they were ever published. Because um, the copyright laws are rather interesting because they weren't very strong in Elizabethan times or Jacobean times. And it, in fact, possession was nine-tenths of the law. And this is what happened in 1609 when a printer called Thomas Thorpe gets hold of Shakespeare's sonnets and publishes them. It would appear without Shakespeare's consent or advice, because some of the sonnets are incomplete. You know, um, he writes this enigmatic, which has pu- pu- puzzled people ever since, um, dedication to the only begetter of these ensuing sonnets, Mr. W.H., all happiness and that eternity promised by our ever-living poet. Well, ever-living relates to the eternity. He's picked up the message, Thorpe has here, that these are poems about how to gain eternity. Um, He's actually realised what they're about. Um, But obviously, the dedication to Mr. W.H. 
is, has caused a lot of problems. You know, there is nobody with the initials WH. Of course, it's Henry Rothersley uh, reversed. You know, he's HW, but he's not a mister. Um, in fact, he's far from being a mister. He's actually an earl. Um, there is nobody, I think, with the initials WH who hasn't actually been cited in Elizabethan times um, as, um, as, as the beautiful youth, because uh, these, 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 this is the... Um, this, this is the issue, you know, is, H, is WH the beautiful youth? And, of course, the only begetter of the sonnets is not WH at all, it's William Shakespeare. And someone even suggested WH stands for William himself. Um, rather ingeniously, but I think a bit too ingeniously. I think uh, WH has nothing to do with these sonnets at all. In fact, I think I'm not the first person to suggest it. It was suggested by... There's nothing new in this area. It was suggested by the great critic Sir Sidney Lee... In the, the, who created the Dictionary of National Biography, and he suggested that the, the begetter is the person who got the sonnets for Thorpe to publish. In which case, the issue becomes simple. It's a st- London stationer called William Hall, the only WH on the list on the stationer's register, and he specialised this kind of thing. He, he obtained for another printer, um, the uh, publisher, the... the um, Poems of Robert Southall, the Jesuit who was executed some years before, one of the great poets, probably a distant cousin of William Shakespeare, certainly, but that's not pertinent to the issue. Um, so it's probable, I think, that the begetter, it does stretch begetter quite a lot, but thought wasn't to know it. The begetter is the person who obtained uh, the, the sonnets uh, for his publication. And um, it is, it's interesting that um, the... The, uh, issue, the edition of um, Shakespeare's, uh, of, of um, Southall's poetry is, to the, is dedicated to the right, worshipful and virtuous gentleman, Matthew Saunders, Esquire, whoever he was, W.H., which is long life, a prosperous achievement of his good desires. So um, that's probably who it was. So this, all this W.H. business is probably a little canard, and it's something that shouldn't be pursued. Anyway... Um, Getting back to the sonnets, after the first 20 or so, 25, um, we find that they're still dedicated to the young man in question, or maybe even a different young man. There's no absolute evidence, but we assume it's the same young man. And um, the uh, tone changes quite a lot. Um, whereas um, Shakespeare has been flattering the young man, and this is absolutely how... A poet, an artist, would address a patron. It's quite normal. Machiavelli um, addresses Lorenzo the Magnificent in, uh, in his Prince in much the same unbelievably extravagant terms because the patron felt he was a part of the creative process. He, he enabled it to, to happen. Therefore, um, it's quite important to do that. Um, so we move on. I, I'm pushed for time, so I'll go through very rapidly. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to, ch- to change my state with kings. Um, he also can berate the young man. Why didst thou promise such a beauteous day and make me f- travel forth without my cloak? Um, and the young man has ceased to be a model of perfection. In fact, a couple of the earlier sonnets, um, No more be grieved at, which thou, at what, that which thou hast done. Roses have thorns and silver pa- fountains mud. And, of course, it's all to do with women problems. That thou hast, it is not all my grief, and yet it may be said, I loved her dear. 
But here's the joy. My friend and I are one. Sweet flattery. Then she loves but me alone. In other words, this young man appears to have removed Shakespeare's girlfriend from him. We'll come to that as well. Anyway, um, I'll just mention it. I've got lots of notes on it, so if you want to raise the issue in questions, but there's a third character appears around about the 70s of the uh, sequence. This is a rival poet who's actually um, vying for the young man's affection or or more likely patronage. Um, And um, Shakespeare um, sees it necessary to see this bloke off. I mean, this young chap is his meal ticket. You know, so it's, uh, it's not quite appropriate that, uh, that this, this other fellow try and sort of muscle in on the act. Now, again, every possible name has been suggested. I've got quite a lot of material on this, but there isn't time to go into it all. Um, what we have to do is look for a young man, look, look for a poet that was approaching Southampton, that was dedicating poetry to Southampton in this era... Chapman did, well-known playwright and poet. He dedicated, in fact, lots and lots of people dedicated stuff to Southampton because he was very wealthy and he was very much part of the court circle and he was very generous as well in his support for artists and poets, etc. Um, two poets that you almost certainly won't have heard of, maybe you have, Barnaby Barnes. Um, not one of the great names, famous names of English literature, but Barnaby Barnes dedicated... Uh, sonnets to, um, to Southampton round about the 1593 era. Um, he has some sort of curious relationship with Shakespeare himself. Um, Shakespeare, he also writes plays, and Shakespeare's company puts on one of his plays. Um, and also, the other fellow is Thomas Nash, who was quite a nasty piece of work. He writes a rather scurrilous, erotic poem called Source of Valentines, which is... Um, subtitled Nash's Dildo, yes, and Dildo is exactly what his, it, it, it implies. Um, he, he dedicates two sonnets to Southampton at each end of, 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 of the sequence. He apologises for being so bawdy in the finals, and he says, it's not me, it's my mentor, Ovid. Now, if, you, uh, if you've actually seen it, when Mears writes it, he says Shakespeare writes with the skill and beauty of, of the great Latin poet Ovid. Um, Shakespeare gets back at this bloke by saying he's a necromancer um, and the implication is that he's, he's using the old Ouija board or whatever they use to get in touch with Christopher Marlowe who died in 1592 um, in order that in fact uh, he can write very good poetry this makes Barnes the most likely fellow because he he's forgotten now but was much admired at the time Anyway, um, we'll forget the rival poet. We can talk a bit more about him. He's a subject in himself, actually. And we come to the fourth person who's a subject. And again, it's very well known um, that the sonnets are actually the last part of the sonnets. And fourth character emerges. You've got William, you've got the beautiful youth, you've got the rival poet, and you get the famous dark lady. Round about sonnet 128, this new character um, pops up. Now, the dark lady, um, there is no doubt that Shakespeare implies this is an intensely sexual relationship he has with the dark lady. Um, she, he, he, we know quite a lot about her from his description. Um, she is musical. Um, she is dark, obviously. In fact, he, Shakespeare calls her black, which was one of the... That doesn't mean to say she was... Uh, Negroid, it means that she was dark in Elizabethan language. She's also wanton. 
She also has the same ability as the youth to persuade people that she's unbelievably beautiful. But whereas the youth is unbelievably beautiful, the dark lady is a bit of a con artist because she is so incredibly fascinating that men become convinced she's beautiful. But on the other hand, Shakespeare loves her deeply. And a uh, beautiful poem, you probably know it. My mystery, he, he makes comparisons. He's probably comparing himself here with the extravagant conceits of the rival poet. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coll is far more red than lip, her lips red. If snow be white, why, then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, walks on the ground. And yet by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Isn't that a wonderful poem? Anyway, what happens then? You're allowed to answer. What do you think happens? You've got the beautiful youth, the dark lady, Shakespeare. What happens then? Go on. You must have a guess. She's wanton, beautiful youth. Yes. (laughs) The beautiful youth and the dark lady get together. He's already hinted that previously, as I said. And Shakespeare's not sure what's going on, you know. So, he actually berates this. He's very upset by this fact. And he um, writes about it in Sonnet 144. Two loves I have of comfort and despair, which like two spirits do suggest me still. The better angel is a man right fair, the worse a spirit, a woman coloured ill. To win my soul to hell... My female evil tempteth my better angel from my side and would corrupt my saint to be a devil, wooing his purity with her foul pride. And whether that my angel be turned fiend, suspect I may, but yet not directly tell, that being both from me, both to each friend, I guess one angel in, each other, in another's hell. Yet this shall I ne'er know but live in doubt, till my bad angel fire my good one out. So he's deeply distressed by the situation. He's... He's got himself, as um, uh, Oliver Hardy might have said, into another fine mess here, obviously. Um, Right, okay. No. He he suffers great sexual disillusion um, as a result of all this going on. And um, he writes, I think, what I would say is the greatest sonnet ever written in the English language, Sonnet 129, to express this deep sexual disillusion. I think you'll see Hamlet here, you'll see King Lear. Shakespeare actually uses, as many of the Elizabethans did, but he uses it effectively um, to actually uh, express disillusion through sexual images. You know, um, the Marriage Guidance Council was in no way part of uh, the Elizabethan thinking. They knew the devastating effect um, that sex could have on people, um, and this is a common Elizabethan theme as well. Now, to understand this poem, um, the expense of spirit, it begins. Spirit here, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a poem of a parallel text. It's absolute genius. On one level, it's talking about spirit, 
the Holy Spirit, um, man's immortal soul. On another level, it's talking about the sexual act. And only a writer of such genius could actually um, combine the two and make them work in parallel in this particular way so that each is coherent to itself, but they relate to each other. And um, the, the, the other thing to remember, spirit is, um, is, is uh, semen, actually, as well as the Holy Spirit. And um, the, the other thing is that, um, I'm trying to find the word here, um, I'll, I'll tell you at the end. Um, yeah, okay, I'll read it to you and then I'll, I'll pick up the word. The expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action. Until action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, and not to trust, enjoyed no sooner than despised straight. Past reason hunted and no sooner had, past reason hated as a swallow bait, on purpose laid to take the, make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had having an inquest to have extreme, a bliss in proof and proved a very well woe, before a joy proposed behind a dream. All this the world well knows, and yet none knows well, to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. So um, there you have Shakespeare's disillusion, apparent sexual disillusion. Um, right, okay. Uh, we've just, if I can take just another few minutes, um, what's all this about? I mean, it's the most extraordinary thing, isn't it? There's this vague story uh, running through these 154 sonnets, or most of them. It d- doesn't run through all of them, but we can, p- we can pick up this very vague story. What's it about? Well, Maybe we should, in order to try and find what, what this is about, and this is where I'm going to fall in love, I, I did warn you I would, um, that in order to find what this is all about, maybe an answer is to say, well, what did the Elizabethans, or what did people who wrote a sonnet or read a sonnet in, a, in the Elizabethan era, what did it represent to them? Well, in order to find that out, we've got to go all the way back to the origins of the sonnet, Um, They were first written, the form was invented or devised in Sicily in the 14th century. Um, It moves into the mainstream of Italian literature. Um, The greatest sonnet writer in Italian is Petrarch. Um, It moves into English in the 1530s with the two poets, uh, Thomas Wyatt and the Earl of Surrey, introduced the sonnet form into the English language. Of course, it's poetically a very complicated form. It's much easier in Italian with, with the vowel endings that it is in English. English. Um, it has this fixed form. Um, because it is um, from the Middle Ages, etc., the sonnets are on the theme of courtly love. Now, courtly love is another misunderstood idea, quite frequently misunderstood idea. Um, Petrarch devoted his sonnets to Laura. Um, he, there was, he had no physical relationship with Laura whatsoever, um, Dante didn't write sonnets, but Dante r- dedicates his la- works to Beatrice, who was married to another man. He just happens to have seen her on the bridge in Florence on one occasion, I think. Um, we're talking about something different here, aren't we? And similarly, when we move into the Elizabethan th- era, we find the same thing. I've already said that the sonnet form as represented by Shakespeare represents the exploration of how we achieve immortality. Um, What is the issue of perfection? Now, um, the courtly love issue is that you would dedicate your life to a particular 
lover, not a lover in the fullest sense, but in the platonic sense. Um, Aristotle, Plato, these were revived in the Middle Ages as dominant philosophers, mainly by Thomas Aquinas, the great Dominican um, moral philosopher um, of the Middle Ages. And the, it, the person you dedicate the work to is your ideal. Um, the Elizabethans use the word idea, um, but it's not quite the same as... A, they used the word idea, they meant I- ideal. In fact, the sonneteer, Michael Drayton, his sonnet sequence was called Ideas Mirror. In other words, the mirror of an ideal. So the person... I mean, I've decided I'm going to fall in love with Helen. Um, I've seen Helen tonight. I've only known her briefly. Hopefully I'll see her again. But if I don't, the rest of my life is going to be dedicated to Helen. Is that fair enough, Helen? You're, you're going to be my muse, in other words. Helen, you are my muse. Um, so... You, you take this person who represents the ideal of human goodness and beauty, etc. Um, and as I say, it's not a physical relationship. And this moves into the 1590s. In the 1590s, there's a huge cult of the sonnet. Everyone was bashing away at them, you know, including Shakespeare himself. But Sidney, Michael Drayton, I've mentioned, Barnaby Barnes, Gervais, Markham, people you've never even heard of. There's thousands of sonnets being written. It was a very brief craze and cult, etc. So Shakespeare tunes in to this. Now, I think Shakespeare, with his... We know about Shakespeare's humour, don't we? He's quite a humourful fellow, as you can see from his picture there. Um, but um, I think Shakespeare thought, if this person is physically unachievable, let's make it a man. Why, do, why can't I dedicate mine to a man, you know? Um, the, the platonic ideal is there. Um, so Shakespeare writes his po- poems to a man. Now, as I say, they they were not intended for publication. They were intended for private circulation amongst people who I think would have got the message. In 1609, Thomas Thorpe publishes his um, edition of Shakespeare's Sonnets, and I say it was almost certainly without Shakespeare's permission. Um, We don't know the reaction to Shakespeare's Sonnets, but it appears that not everyone got the joke uh, or got the point of them, and I'll come to why I think that very shortly. There was no second edition of Shakespeare's sonnets till 1640. In other words, there was no second edition till 31 years after Shakespeare, uh, after the first edition had been published. They're, they're, they're published in 1640 in London by a man called, another stationer called John Benson. Um, and John Benson um, writes a preface to the... Uh, Sonnets. Um, he actually also realizes they're written to a fellow, and the little clues that, that they are, ch- there's very few of them, that's why it wasn't realized. He actually changes the sonnet slightly so that the reference to a man are slightly obliterated. There's, there's not many changes he makes, it's only about three, but he changes those little things. But he writes a preface, and he says, I here presume, under favor, to present to your view some excellent and sweetly com- composed poems of Master William Shakespeare, which in themselves appear of the same purity the author himself then avouched. The author himself then avouched. In other words, from what um, uh, Benson says, Shakespeare had to go around saying, well, they're written to a bloke. He had to go and explain himself to people because people got the wrong end of the stick. And, of course, you must remember that homosexuality or homosexual act was punishable by death. Elizabethan times. I don't think many people were brought to trial, but it wasn't sort of the kind of accusation you would necessarily want uh, to be levelled at you. So 
hardly anybody ever looks at this second preface to the second edition, but it actually says that Shakespeare himself avouched that these sonnets uh, were intended to be mirrors of virtue, which if you take the little courtly love theory, which is predominant uh, throughout the Elizabethan sonnet sequences, Michael Drayton dedicated um, his sonnet sequence to a lady called Anne Goodyear. Uh, she was the wife of his master. He was a page in the household. He writes these songs. He's Shakespeare's great friend. Um, Michael Drayton, the poet, uh, came from the same place, came from just outside Stratford-on-Avon, and um, the, his sonnets to Anne Goodhear have a huge intimacy to them. There's one that opens, Since there's no ho- hope, come let us kiss and part. Nay, I have done. They'll get no more of me. Philip Sidney dedicates his poem, poems to Lady Rich, uh, who married the Earl of Warwick, in fact. Um, and uh, there's no physical relationship there. So I think you've got the point um, that these aren't poems dedicated to a physical lover. They're dedicated to an ideal, an idea or an ideal. I've mentioned um, that um, one of the... Well, the, a major theme of the sonnets is uh, the decay brought about by time the idea of perfection, when I consider everything that grows holds imperfection, but a little moment. Wonderful line, but, you know, it's true. Um, through a glimpse of perfection, we can get the ideal of a higher perfection. The higher perfection is contained in the young man and his virtue and his beauty. Um, the higher perfection is contained in Shakespeare's work, which will survive, as we've seen. Um, but there is a third way to defeat time. Shakespeare's referred to the human soul... Petrarch um, finishes his own sonnet sequence to Laura with a hymn to the Virgin Mary. Just as Laura represents earthly perfection, the Blessed Virgin represents heavenly and eternal perfection. If we look at sonnet 148, um, Shakespeare deals with the third way in which we achieve perfection, uh, which is through our immortal souls. Sorry, it's not 148, it's beyond that. 146, we've got it. Well done, my assistant. On the, I've, yeah, I've switched my muse. You're, yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry, Helen. But, yeah, see, yeah, there we are. Okay. Poor soul, the centre of my sinful earth, bearing these rebel powers that thee array, why dost thou pine within and suffer dearth, painting thy outward walls so costly gay? Why so large cost, having so short a lease, Dost thou upon thy fading mansion, mansion spend? Shall worms, inheritors of this excess, eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? Then, soul, live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy, thy store. By terms divine in selling hours of dross, within be fed, without be rich no more. So shalt thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death once dead, there's no more dying then. So, there we have it. Um, this, this great contemplation on time, a great comp- contemplation on ideas. Um, maybe these people never even existed. Shakespeare skillfully uses them as vehicles for his theme. I think within the sonnets, we can witness, um, in a rare and privileged way, the, the deep genius of, of this man. You know, it's, it's all there, all the genius of Shakespeare, his verbal dexterity, his wit... Um, his actual concern with eternal issues. I mean, whether, whether you believe in God or not, there, there are eternal issues that, uh, that Shakespeare addresses here. 
So, I think, if I'm right about Mr. W.H., and as I said, you know, I wasn't going to mix matters. We were going for, for certainties. You know, we're going to stab with pins all over the place. We have a great debt um, that we owe to William Hall, who I think obtained the uh, sonnets um, for uh, Thomas Thorpe, and we have a great debt we owe to Thomas Thorpe for actually printing them for us, because otherwise we'd have had two of the 154. So it's an amazing thought, that. Thank you very much. Good to see you.